Well, if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 2. The star of Bethlehem has a central place in the Christmas story. But actually, its mention in the Bible is quite brief. It's only mentioned four times. And it's all in the same story, the story of the Magi coming to try to find Jesus after he was born. Let's go ahead and read this real quick, beginning in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star. Notice, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They saw a star and they lived most likely 800 to 1,000 miles east and they saw his star and they followed it to Jerusalem. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. This was something that the whole town heard and began to freak out about. When he had called them together, all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where was the Messiah to be born? And they replied, in Bethlehem in Judea. For this is what was written in the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And they are referring to an Old Testament prophet by the name of Micah. Uh, Micah was one of those minor prophets, uh, still several centuries before Jesus. But in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, they quote him and he identifies Bethlehem as the city in which Jesus will come forth. So God sends a star. He sends a star that essentially the whole world could have seen. These three magi from Persia saw it hundreds of miles away. The Chinese documented seeing it, and they were thousands of miles away. And if anybody else was doing astronomy at that time, they would have seen it too. It was a star for all to see. And its chief message is this. It is God saying to the people on earth below, I want to be found by you. I'm not hiding myself. I'm not sneaking in. I'm announcing my birth, the birth of my son, with a star that as this earth is spinning, all of the world can see. And we know that there were at least three people who interpreted the star correctly to know that the Jewish Messiah was coming. The star essentially says, I light up the way to me. And I want my son Jesus to be found. I want to be found by you. I'm going to light up the way. I'm going to light up everything I can light up so that you can find me. For you it may not be a star. Maybe it's another light up. But there are things that God will light up across our way and in our lives so that we can find him. And we can rest in the fact that God is far better at finding us than we are at getting lost. And so even at night, even in the darkest nights of an actual night or the darkest nights of our soul, God is lighting up the way so that everybody finds Jesus. That's probably the biggest overarching meaning of the star. Everybody finds Jesus. 
God's not hiding. Now, you may say, well, that's, I don't know if I would interpret it like that. Remember, God can't necessarily expose him whole, his whole self. His glory would just fry the earth. So we look for these ways in which God communicates. And the Christmas star was one of the most powerful way he communicated, but not the only way he communicated. Think about the people who were a part of the journey in that first Christmas. Mary and Joseph. We read about Herod, a jealous king, and some wise men from the east. We don't know much about them other than apparently they were wise and some common shepherds who were sleeping in the field, angels and and all the others. What do they all have in common? On the surface, not very much. There wasn't a lot between Joseph, a carpenter, and a shepherd, or the magi who were wise men and, and the innkeeper. But they do have this in common. They answered God's invitation to come and see the arrival of Jesus. Joseph had a dream. That's a very personal way to communicate, isn't it? Mary had an angelic visitation. Those are very personal ways for God to come and say, hey, I'm coming, here I am. And I think for many of us, that's probably more common. You, you can think of a personal experience where it almost was kind of your wake-up call or God kind of knocking on the door of your heart or God knocking on the door of your life saying, hey, I'm real, it's all true, follow me. But the wise men had the star. That was something completely different. No angels visited them. There was no dreams of which they had. They saw what everybody could see. And while everybody probably looked at it and said, oh, neat star, and then went on with their life, they looked at it and said, that's more than a neat star. Something powerful is happening. Something is happening. God is doing something on the earth. And they recognized it. When they came to Jerusalem, they had more questions than answers. It's okay to come to Jesus with more questions than answers. It's okay to come to Jesus with more blank lines than complete sentences. But the fact of the matter is, the star shows us that God not only comes to us personally, he comes to us universally so that all the people could see. The whole world could see it. Now back to the passage. In the passage that the scribes are quoting for King Herod, it's a passage out of the book of Micah. And, and Micah is a very interesting prophet. He's almost what we, what we call in, in seminary the bipolar prophet because in one chapter he's prophesying all this doom and gloom. Terrible things are going to happen. And then the next chapter all this hope. And it's doom and gloom and hope. Doom and gloom and hope. You get dizzy just reading it. But in this fifth chapter, now he's made the case that Judea, which is a little ancient province, was about to be invaded by the ancient empire of Assyria. Not Syria, Assyria, much bigger. They were about to come in and conquer Judea. They had already stopped the flow of food. They'd stopped the trade. They were damming up rivers and water. Uh, they were making life very miserable. Micah talks about how there's, you don't hear the sound of weddings anymore, and you don't hear the sound of merriment. Everybody is in de- depression because they sense this impending doom coming. The future for them held certain fear. 
And I think sometimes for us, we can get in that same spot where the future for us can almost seem to have certain fears. It's something to be afraid of because bad things are happening. And Micah recognized that. And in the midst of all of this doom and gloom, he really prophesies an amazing prophecy because essentially uh, Assyria is, is held back by the, by the hand of God. I won't necessarily go into that because that's an Old Testament sermon. So he prophesies their deliverance in the near term, but he also prophesies the coming of the Messiah in the long term. It would happen several centuries later. And essentially what Micah is saying is, with the becoming of the Messiah through Bethlehem, it's the coming of hope for whatever person has an Assyrian empire knocking down their doors. There is a Messiah to meet them. And that is what Micah is saying. That everything is bad sometimes. But that God will help you endure, overcome, and he'll make all things good again. The first message the star brings is the message of hope. A hope that endures and perseveres and believes. Now for us, Christmas Christmas can have any number of struggles. Uh, it can have financial stresses. It can have relational dysfunctions, memories of loss, lost loved ones who are no longer here, gift expectations. I'll tell you, one of the most common conversations I have with people from our church or people from everywhere is, I don't know what I'm going to get and then fill in the blank, you know? It's just this anxious pressure, you know? I think God's saying, you know, let's all be happy we have some money to give anybody anything with, right? You know? I mean, that's, we live in a blessed country where you can go to the dollar store and buy somebody a gift, all right? But, but, but we have, you know, sort of these tensions and expectations. And in the midst of this, the hope of God and God's power, I want to remind us of four things. And if you turn your sheet over, those four things, these sentences are these four things. The first one is this. Hope acknowledges the darkness. There are dark times. Ask anybody who lived through World War II in Europe. That was a dark time. Ask anyone who was in New York City on September 11th. That was a dark time. Hope acknowledges the darkness. The people of Israel had to acknowledge that they were under dark times. They were oppressed brutally by the Romans before they had been oppressed brutally by uh, the Assyrians who did eventually conquer. And so there was a sense that in order to know what you're hoping for, you have to acknowledge what's wrong, acknowledge what's bad. I remember a few months ago I was watching a newscast and there was a lady on there who was trying to make the case that there is no such thing as morality, that uh, good and bad, righteous and wicked, evil and good you know all those kinds of distinction those are human constructs and they don't exist everybody should just be allowed to do everything that's the way we were created i remember scratching my head going what you know like everybody should be able to do everything that would be like chaos mass chaos no sometimes you have to acknowledge the darkness there are things that are evil we have to acknowledge that or else we'll never know what we're hoping for number two and this is the hardest one. Hope 
embraces the weight. Now, we, we live in a culture where we do everything possible to reduce the amount of time we spend waiting. But hope embraces the weight because in God, the waiting always has a purpose. The waiting has a purpose. How can I say that? Well, there's nothing that God does, or better yet, there's nothing that God has us wait for that doesn't ultimately have a purpose in the timing of it. See, for us, the timing is always now. I'm hungry. I want to eat now. I want this. I want the, the timing is always now. But in God, there is a perfect timing to things as we live out these linear lives on earth. And know this, God will not wait one moment longer than necessary to meet the need. Whatever it is you're praying for, whatever it is you're hoping for, God will not wait one moment longer than is necessary to meet the need. And so our challenge is to embrace the waiting but we embrace the weight with hope. Hope is what makes the weight worth it. Hope is what makes the weight endurable and bearable. Hope is what actually can make the weight enjoyable when we come to that place of solid trust, knowing that God will not delay one moment longer than is absolutely necessary to meet the need. Number three, hope is active during the wait. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed at his coming. What is Peter saying? Don't just sit back and wait. I'm waiting for God to do something in my life, so I'm going to sit back and do nothing until God punches a hole and blasts me out of this chair. Well, that's just not how God works. Often, God says, get going, get moving. You got a neighbor you could help. You got a family member you can bless. You got somebody over here, and there's some things over there. Get moving, get going. And as you get moving, God begins to steer and guide you into where he's taking you. And often, our hopes are realized in that sense. How many of you know you can't steal a sail, steer a sailboat that isn't going, isn't moving? You can't steer things that are stopped. So as we get going and we get moving, God steers us and we arrive at his plan because of his grace. Hope is active during the wait. So hope acknowledges the darkness. Hope embraces the wait. Hope is active during the wait. But finally, hope is built on God and not people. If you really look, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find the tension between two things. Whenever the people placed their hope in a person, like a king or a general or a judge or whatever, if that person wasn't sent by God to be their deliverer, things turned out badly. Because people, even the strongest among us, we're not so powerful that we and of our own power can overcome the world. We just can't. The world's too big for us. When we depend too much in the power of people, we often get frustrated and eventually burnt out. And I've seen it. But when we put our hope in God, God may send a person, but we're not putting our hope in that person. We're putting our hope in the God who sent the person. See the difference? It's, 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 I, I, I always pray, don't put your hope in me. 
All right? First of all, that's way too pre- much pressure on me. Second of all, I'm not that good at anything, you know. But put your hope in the God who may send me to do something. Now, that's different. Because if you're putting your hope in God and God sent me, then I know I'm going to be moving and flowing with God's power, God's wisdom, God's peace, God's advice. And then all of a sudden, true healing and true effectiveness can happen. You see, remember, God makes stars that move and guide people to him. God gives dreams that move and guide people to him. God sends angels. Sometimes you see the angels. You wake up at night. There they are. Or you're going along your day and you look back and they're gone. (laughs) Sometimes they're all around us invisibly. You know, I tell you this. I think it'll be really funny to look back on the videotape of our lives and see all the ways God did stuff for us and we never even realized it. So we put our hope built on God, not in people. Because although God sends angels and dreams and visions and even gut feelings, God also sends stars, stars for all of us to see because God wants to be found by us. Why? So that we would put our hope in Him. What's that song? My hope is built on nothing less than righteousness. Our hope is built on the grace of God. Now, before we just go past that, because in church you hear the term grace of God a lot. But the fact of the matter is, many of us, we're not quite sure how that works. Sometimes I'll go home and I'll have had a horrible day. God, I, was, I let my temper fly, I was angry, I was mean, I did some things I shouldn't have done, and I just know that you need to punish me. I'm going to go home tonight, I'm going to have a bad evening because I don't deserve one bit of whatever good thing you might send my way because I have been terrible today. And that's when God says, Tom, you do not understand grace. Even in your worst I am at my best in your life. Hope is all built on the grace of God. If it's built on anything else, then there's no strength to that hope and there's no peace to it either because now we've gone back to performance and I'm tired of performance. Best I can give and the best I can get is the grace of God. Amen? To close the service today, I have invited one of our new youth pastors. All this month, not only are we going to be having special music, but I'm also inviting some of the young adults in our church to come up and share their story and how it relates to the message. Someone challenged me a few months ago, you know, Tom, have you ever realized that you're the youngest person who speaks in our church? For a moment I thought, yeah, that's right, I'm young. And they're like, no, 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 you're 45. (laughs) That's not young anymore. (laughs) And so... I thought about that and I thought, you know what? It's time to begin to invest in the young adults and the next generation, just like we have the events for them. We're trying to invest. And one of the young men we've been investing in is a man named Thomas Tarango. He's one of our youth pastors. Please welcome him up as he he shares his 
millennialness with us. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> millennialness. Oh boy, what a way to start. Thank you. I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but I know a lot of you out there, but for those who you don't know me, my name is Thomas Tarango, and I'm a youth leader at LifePoint Church. Um, I dedicate every Wednesday to reaching out to the kids that we have here, and it's just been a wonderful blast. Um, but I'd like to share with you a bit of my testimony, the hope that I've had, the hope that I've lost, and the hope that I've regained. Growing up, I lived in a very broken home. I went through a couple of stepfathers. My dad abandoned us when we were born, when I was born. I have two younger brothers and a baby sister, and they mean the world to me. But I remember I always kept a little bit of hope, and one day that hope was recognized. My mom had met this wonderful man. His name was Mark Peterson. He was a retired sheriff deputy, and he reached out to our family. He put us in a home. He listened to us. He got to know us. He took me to my first concert. He believed in us. And three years after they were together, they got married. I was able to walk my mom down the aisle and I gave her away to him. That night was so magical. It was amazing. It was the best night that I ever had. I finally had this family. I finally had that hope. And the next day he passed away. He passed away. And I saw all that hope in my family, the hope inside of me vanish, dust in the wind. And I had to be strong for my family, but I myself went down a really bad path. I indulged in the desires of flesh, what this world had to offer me. I would spend all day watching movies, Netflix, all that stuff. Grades plummeted. I resorted to self-harm. There were a lot of things that I did to escape that pain, to like just tried to escape that darkness, but at the end of the night, when all the fun was over, and when I had to rest my head on the pillow, there was silence. There was no hope. There was no grace in me. There was no happiness in me, and I continued that life for seven long years. Seven long years until one time, the Varellas reached out to me. It was actually their daughter, Sarah Varela, reached out to me and said, Thomas, why don't you come to church with us? And I said, ah, that's stupid. Why would I ever do that? Like, there's, there's, a new, there's new shows to watch, you know? There's a new season of this. There's a new season of that. There's a new Starbucks drink that's coming out. It's the Chestnut Praline Latte. It's my favorite drink. Why? <laughs> I'm not going to give up that on a Sunday morning. I'd rather sleep. But she persisted. And I went. And that first day, I still thought, yeah, this is kind of dumb. I don't want to be here. But she convinced me to come a second week. And as Tom was giving his lesson, uh, was doing praise and worship, he invited people who felt as if they needed prayer to go and pray with Don and Diane Shilley. And I don't know if you guys have ever met them. They changed my life, changed my life. And I went over there thinking nothing, thinking that what power does prayer have? What power does the God who took away everything from me have in my life if I don't give him that power? And they spoke to me and they prayed and they placed their hand over my head and they said things that I haven't told anyone. They spoke about my father, who I haven't talked about to anyone in seven long years. And I felt the grace of God just come over me, just flow through me. And I believed. I chose to believe that day. And ever since then, his grace just flows through my veins, and it just burns. And his, his fire is what ignites my heart. 
And I thought I, that was it. I thought, okay, that's great. Like, you know, I'm a Christian now. I'm born again. Oh, amazing, you know, but God wasn't done with me. God wasn't done with me. I forget who it was who approached me, but someone said, Thomas, why don't you go and try out youth leadership? And I thought, why would I want to be in a room with a bunch of snot-nosed kids that always gives me flat tires? And I don't know if you guys know what a flat tire is, where they put their foot behind and, like, step on your shoe. It's all bad. And I thought to myself, <laughs> what? You know, I already, did, I already dealt with my two brothers growing up. Why would I want to dedicate my life to that? But I did. And at first, I thought it was really dumb. The first month, actually, I thought it was really dumb. I thought, okay, I'm just a helping hand. I'll clean the floors. I'll set up the tables and everything like that. But then God tapped on my heart, and he said, open up. Open up to them. And I learned their names. I think I know every kid's name, actually, in our youth group now. I know their passions. I know them through Christ. I know the sadness behind their smiles, too. I know that despair that I see in the this very small side glances that I see from them. And that's where God had really shown me what I need to do, what I need to do. My purpose in life, the hope that he placed in me is something that I can share with them. The experiences that I had gone through alone, losing my father, going through all those things by myself, they don't have to go through that anymore because God will pour out through me to them, and that is my hope for this year. My hope for this year is that not by my own will, but Christ through me and through the leaders and through the people of this church, that we can pierce that darkness that just, that just ravages kids just as it did me. I actually got that calling when I went to Camp Cedarcrest. I'm actually wearing the merch right now. 25 bucks, best money I ever spent, super comfortable in the winter. Not a sponsor. They didn't, they're not paying me for this. I went there, and I saw Christ, through my eyes, change people, make people that I know were introverts jump on up on stage and preach and pray, something that only God can do. The hope of God, through their eyes, reflected in mine. And I decided right then and there, well, God had decided for me, but I, I had accepted my calling as a youth pastor. And that's what I told Tom, and I thought he may have laughed at me. He took me seriously. I'm taking classes now at some of, uh, Summit Bible College. And it's just amazing to think where I was to where I am and how I had lost hope in God. After all that time, I had lost hope in God, but God had never lost hope in me. He had never lost hope in me. And the verse that he always reminds me, the verse that I always credit my redemption to is actually Galatians 3.20. Now that I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That's one of the most powerful verses in my life that I keep true to every day. That although I had lost hope, although I had walked a bad path, that God intended to use every experience that I had now to pour out to these kids, to really just, just share my heart with them. That way they don't have to go through it alone as I had done. Um, so that's actually my testimony. Um, I don't have anything else more to say, but I just, I'm really praying for just an amazing December and into the new year, an even brighter new year as well. So I'm going to hand it back to Tom now. Thank you guys so much.
Come on, one more time. <laughs> you hear the common thread. And I, I could have five more. Maybe one Sunday we will. Where you hear the common thread of, you know, terrible things happened. And I got in despair and tried to self-medicate. But when I went to bed every night, there was no peace. And then God punched a hole into this world and exploded onto my heart. And now I have peace and a purpose. Doesn't mean that the bad things go away. We live, point number one, acknowledge the darkness. We live in a world where good and bad happens all the time. But through Christ, through the hope we place in Christ, we can endure, persevere, and believe in the hope of tomorrow. Amen? As we close today, I'd like you to do a little bit of reflection and ask yourself, where are some areas where maybe I have lost some hope? Maybe I've just given up. Or areas you know you've been hoping for, but you are exhausted in the hope. Maybe also, there's some things you've been hoping for, but you've ruined it. Uh, maybe you, 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 you were hoping for something, and you tried to make it happen, and you made it worse. And now you feel like you can't even really hope for it anymore because you, you screwed it all up. I mean, it's, 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 you, you, you made a mess of things. And now it's not worth even hoping for anymore because uh, you didn't embrace the weight. You didn't acknowledge things. You, you, you just bombed it out of existence. Remember God's grace. With God, nothing is impossible. There is no conflict that can't be resolved. There is no situation or scenario where God cannot bring a measure of His will or plan in. And so even if you've ruined it, you've given up on it, or you've just been tired in the wait, find whatever that is right now. And just repeat after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I reaffirm you are my hope based on your grace. Thank you for your work in my life, I will continue to live today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, in the hope of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.